the summer of 2009 in Long Branch, New Jersey. Already on the trip, right? Long Branch, New Jersey, 2009. A police officer, Christy Buble, responded to a nearby call of uh, the homeowners of a house for sale uh, reported a suspicious person in their yard, kind of a, an eccentric old man. And so Officer Buble was around the corner, and she uh, came around, and she, there she, she saw this eccentric old man standing in the pouring rain, wearing two raincoats, the hood pulled up over his head, and sweatpants tucked into his rain boots. And he's just walking down the street, and so she pulls over, and she says, Sir, uh, can I ask you what your name is? And the reply came, Bob Dylan, as in legendary, terrible singer, famous 60s songwriter. I love Bob Dylan, but he does not have a great voice. Now, the officer, uh, Officer Buble, is just 21 at the time. This is 10 years ago. She's 21 years old. But she knew enough to recognize the name Bob Dylan. But, of course, she's thinking, yeah, right, sure. This crazy old coot standing here on on the street in a nice neighborhood in New Jersey. Yes, they exist. That that joke, I wasn't sure if that would land or not. See, I lived in Philly for a while, and there, if you make fun of New Jersey, you just get brownie points with everybody present, except the people from New Jersey. But yes, really nice neighborhood in New Jersey, and Bob Dylan, so to speak, is is wandering around in this neighborhood. And so, understandably, she thought this was either just a coincidence. Bob's a pretty common name. Dylan's not all that uncommon. So it's either just a coincidence, or this guy escaped from the asylum recently, right? And so she asked him for some identification, and conveniently, Bob Dylan doesn't have his ID on him. So she asks him, will you, will you please get in the back of the car? And uh, there's just been, you know, worried calls about your presence. It's a little unsettling. So he's very understanding, very gracious. He gets in the back of the car, and they make some small talk. You know, what are you doing in this neighborhood looking for a house for sale? Um, what brings you to town? I'm touring the country with John Cougar Mellencamp and Willie Nelson. Right. Of course you are, because you're Bob Dylan. Um, But obviously, Officer Buble doesn't buy a word of it. Now, the guy hasn't broken any laws. He's just weird. He's just being weird, which some might say there should be laws against being weird. But at this point, he's just walking down the road. And um, the problem was Officer Buble didn't recognize the real Bob Dylan. She had seen pictures of him from 40 years before, but his appearance had understandably changed. Who here has changed in the last 40 years? I'm I'm, I'm 36. I've definitely changed in the last 40 years, right? Well, a similar event to this, just make it clear, that is the real Bob Dylan, right? So she arrested Bob Dylan and and (laughs) humiliated herself in front of her older peers at the precinct. Uh, A similar event, though, happened in the life of Jesus. Actually, several times during his earthly ministry, uh, he often encountered those who rejected his claims of who he was. And like the responding officer to this suspicious, you know, eccentric old man, the people in Jesus' day just couldn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They couldn't believe it when he made claims to divinity, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. It's easy for us to to read, we're about to read in Mark's gospel, so if you want to turn to Mark chapter 2, it's easy for us to to read exchanges like this and think, well, how could they miss it, right? Like, it's so clear to us that Jesus is who he says he is. 
And so we think that they're just fools, that they're blind to miss it. But if we're honest, we're just as guilty of the same thing except in reverse. Here's what I mean. The saints in the Old Testament were given symbols or pictures or signs of what the Messiah would be like. But when he came, they didn't recognize him. They took the pictures that God had given them, prophet, priest, king, Jesus as the second Adam, he's the new and better Moses, he's the true Israel, he's the Passover lamb, and so on and so forth. On every page of the Old Testament, we can find these signs, these pictures to show us what the Messiah would look like. And they were given these signs, but when he came, they didn't recognize him. We, on the other hand, have been given a greater and fuller revelation. The Messiah whom Eve had been promised right after the fall in the garden. Your seed will crush the head of the serpent, the Lord told her. We've seen him. He's been revealed to us in Scripture. Colossians 1.15 tells us this Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But what we take so often for granted, this, this amazing revelation of God in human flesh, our Old Testament counterparts would have died for. If they had seen this full revelation, it probably would have given them a heart attack, to be honest. See, David and and the other prophets wrote down all these signs, and, and they knew the promise, and that's how they're saved, is that they believed the promise. Amen? They're saved the same way we are, by believing the promise. But we actually know Jesus better than David did. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? So what's causing the problem here? Well, the believers in the Old Testament saw the pictures and they didn't recognize him when he came. We've seen the revelation. We don't, honestly, a lot of times when we're reading the Old Testament, we don't recognize him in the Old Testament. So there's two possibilities here. Either God has failed in revealing himself to us or we have failed in seeing him. Can anybody venture a guess which one I think is right? (laughs) The problem is not in God. The problem is with our eyes. Now, I could devote a lengthy sermon series to a multitude of the pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, but today we're just going to focus on one. So look with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, and it says this. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would help our eyes to see, that you would give us understanding. And Holy Spirit, please come and be our teacher here this morning. Did you catch it? Did you see Jesus in the picture that he refers to in the Old Testament? Don't feel bad if you didn't. Most people miss these pictures. We read over them, we think nothing of it, right? And then Jesus comes along and he starts saying, I am the bread of life, right? 
He says at the, the Feast of Lights, I am the light. Right? And he says all these, these I am sayings through John's gospel. Well, here, what he's showing the Pharisees is that he is the Sabbath. He is our rest. What do I mean? To understand this, we need to at least have a basic understanding of what the Sabbath is in Scripture. But first, here's the main thing I want to convey to you today. And it's my prayer that if you take one thing from this sermon, it's this. The Sabbath is a gift from God to remind you that you aren't God. Amen? You're not God. And I'll explain this in more detail in a few moments, but for now, let's look at a few key places in the Old Testament where the Lord began to show glimpses of Christ in the Sabbath. Look with me first at Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. and We'll put this on the screen. It says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Do you see a recurring theme in this verse? It seems a bit redundant. It's like, okay, I get it. He rested from all the work he had done. You just keep saying that over and over again, Moses. Well, there's a purpose in this, right? And and we miss this in English because when we want to emphasize something, we put three or four or five or six exclamation marks at the end, right? Right? Well, in Hebrew, what they did was they would just repeat these things. It's recapitulation is what it's called. So Moses keeps saying this over and over and over. God created, and then God rested from creating. He was done, and he rested, and he did it, and then he rested, and he, he, he rested, right? So he's driving home this point. This is where we first see the principle of a Sabbath rest, but it's not law yet. This is, this is kind of an interesting thing for us to consider, right? Now, If you know your Bibles, you know, and we're going to get into this in a moment, that in Exodus, we're given a law that says, on the seventh day, you're going to rest, because God rested. We'll get there in just a moment. But for now, it's just interesting to note that it's not law at creation. There's a precedent set by God himself. Now, did God rest because he was tired? You can answer that. No, you can confidently answer that because we know God does not tire, amen? He neither slumbers nor sleeps. Well, let's look now at Exodus chapter 20. And while you're turning there, I just want to interject this. Christians have kind of an interesting relationship, kind of a strange and strained relationship with the Ten Commandments, don't we? We have no problem with the commands like you shall have no other gods before you. Well, I say we have no problem. We recognize the abiding validity of that command quite easily. We do have a problem carrying that out because we make ourselves gods. But we recognize that that law, that command, still applies today. That was not done away with. We have no qualms saying, no, you shall not murder. That didn't change in the New Testament. It's not that all of a sudden now we can murder, now we can lie, now we can commit adultery. We recognize that these commands still abide. But for some reason, we don't take the fourth commandment very seriously. Listen to the words of Exodus 20, verse 8. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Nobody. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, 
and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now think about this for a moment from the perspective of the Israelite who had just been brought out of slavery from Egypt in bondage for 400 years in Egypt with no rest. And now they're not just being asked or encouraged to rest. They're being commanded to rest. At another place in Exodus, the Lord says, above all, he's recapping the law to Moses, and he says, but above all, tell them, you shall keep the Sabbath, and if you don't, you're dead. That escalated quickly, right? Like it goes from, I really want you to take a day off to if you don't, I'm going to kill you. He's not messing around, right? And Moses is about to come down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and and deliver this news to the Israelites. Now, all the commandments are relatively brief. You can read the entire Ten Commandments in a, a couple of minutes. It doesn't take very long to read the Ten Commandments. But the fourth commandment in regard to the Sabbath is by far longer than any other commandment. It's certainly longer than the ones that just say, you shall not murder. He doesn't have to explain that. But the Lord has to explain to us what resting means and why we do it. But resting like that is pretty counterintuitive to us, isn't it? We're just not wired this way. However, we must remember we're not wired right right now, right? Something needs fixed in there. When was the last time you got a raise for taking a day off? Man, boss, I'm not coming in today. I'm, I'm tired. You know what? That's a good idea. I'm going to double your salary, right? Like that's, that's counterintuitive in our culture. I want to interject something kind of personal here because you need to know that as one of your pastors, I don't have this perfected, right? Like I don't go home after church most Sundays and kick my feet up and relax the rest of the day. This is probably one of the more hypocritical sermons I've ever preached. (laughs) But a couple weeks ago, I sat in our living room with Amy after we put the kids to bed, and and I cried like a baby because I'm, I'm exhausted. Between trying to follow the Lord, between trying to imperfectly love my wife as Christ loves the church, raising our one and three year old overseeing our children's ministry, our youth ministry, men's, women's, music ministry, communications, and earning a master's degree at seminary, I'm just exhausted. And I feel like life is just going by too fast. And I put Olive to bed that night, and she fell asleep, and I just sat, I laid there and I looked at her, and I thought, she's three and a half. How did this happen? Where did the time go? And I came out to the living room and I sat with Amy and I just wept. And so I contacted our, uh, essentially our administrative pastor, John Melvin, and I, and I said, hey, um, do you think it would be all right if I took some time off? And he, without hesitation, he said, you're absolutely due some time off. And so it's, it's not a lengthy sabbatical, but I'm going to take a, a two-week vacation at the end of the year. And so I want to thank you for your support. Look, I recognize not everybody has the ability to take a two-week vacation. I don't take that for granted but I want you to know that I love you 
and I'm trying to work through this stuff. I'm trying to figure out what it means to rest in Christ, okay? So I just wanted to interject that to say I love the responsibilities that I have. There is nothing in the world I would rather do. But there is a natural rhythm when we obey the fourth commandment. We work, we rest, we work, we rest. We can't just work ourselves into oblivion. And probably every person in this room could likewise list all of the commitments that you have that are good things, but when they add up, they just take their toll on you. Do you relate to that? Is anybody else here just tired sometimes? Maybe today you're just tired. I have really, really, really good news for you today. You're not God. (laughs) That's good news. Because if you were, you'd make a really bad one. You know how I know? Because I would make an even worse one than you. (laughs) We're not God. If you don't do this thing or that for a day, the world will not implode. You don't have the whole world in your hands. Now, there's some obvious exceptions here. Two things. Necessity and mercy. Okay, necessity and mercy. So, one of the responsibilities that I listed a moment ago is raising our kids. I don't get to just go home after church today and go, sorry, babe, it's my Sabbath. (laughs) You take care of them. Because guess what? She's been taking care of them all week. (laughs) She's tired. She needs Sabbath too, right? So so there are exceptions to Sabbath rest, like taking care of needs, necessities, right? So if if Knox is crying for a clean diaper and Olive is asking for help getting water, it would not be godly or good for me to say, I'll help you tomorrow, (laughs) right? But that's exactly the kind of response the Pharisees had in the passage we read in Mark 2 when Jesus' disciples were plucking heads of grain to eat. They were essentially saying, how dare you eat on the Sabbath? Does does that sound like much work? Meandering through a grain field and plucking heads of grain, right? It doesn't sound like much work to me, but the Pharisees were convinced these were Sabbath breakers who must die. Well, they're actively looking for dirt on Jesus, aren't they? They wanted to take him down, and so what did they appeal to? They didn't appeal to the biblical command. They didn't say, but the Bible says you shall rest on the the Sabbath day because God made it holy. They didn't do that. They appealed to human tradition. Something helpful for us to note here is that in your Bibles, most of your Bibles, between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, There's maybe one or two kind of blank pages. It might say the New Testament, and then there's a blank page, right? You know how many years that represents between Malachi and Matthew? 400 years that God was silent. He had spoken to his people for 4,000 years, giving them sign after sign of what the Messiah would do, who he was, what he looks like. And they kept killing God's messengers. So God says, okay, we're done talking then. 400 years until John the Baptist arrives on the scene. Well, in these intervening years, 
God's people felt that silence. It was deafening. Have you ever been in a room so quiet, you know, they say you could hear a pin drop? It's eerie, isn't it? That was the kind of experience that Israel was having spiritually. It was dead silent for 400 years when God had been speaking to them for 4,000 years. And so they thought, well, if we're going to get God back on speaking terms with us, we really need to up our game. We really need to take what he has said more seriously. Problem was, they, they said, we need to take what he has said more seriously than he meant it. So they started to put together all these lists of requirements to say, not just remember the Sabbath, not just rest, but here's exactly how you're supposed to do it. One of the regulations was that on the Sabbath day, you could walk 1,999 steps. And that's not work. But the second you take that 2,000th step, you're dead. It was possible that the Pharisees were referring to traditions like this when they called the disciples out. One of my favorite older theologians is Bishop J.C. Ryle, and and he had a way with words, and, and he said this. We see from these verses in Mark 2, listen to this, what extravagant importance is attached to trifles by mere formalists in religion. I read that, mere formalists. I said, shut up, J.C. Ryle. You don't shut up. You don't talk about Because you ever feel like a mere formalist? Like you're just, you're just marking things off the to-do list? Isn't it incredible that the human heart has the ability to take a good gift from God like a day of rest and somehow turn it on its head and make rest itself a work? We can make absolutely anything, any good gift from God, legalistic. Did you know that? Praying, reading the Bible, even serving others. Like Martha in Luke chapter 10. We take these good things and we make not what God has said, but what we do, the benchmark, we pervert the good gift of God and fall into the trap of legalism. Who was guilty of legalism in the Bible? It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't the disciples and the apostles. It wasn't the prophets. Well, maybe sometimes. Maybe giving them a little bit more credit than they're due. But it was the Pharisees. This is what they were known for. 1,998, 1,990. You better stop right there. Better not take another step. Look at someone and say, you've never been legalistic, have you? No, seriously. Say, you've never been legalistic, have you? No? You don't want to answer that, do you? Because I have. My goodness, let me, let me be transparent with you for a minute. When I first got really serious about following the Lord, I threw out all my secular music. I didn't even want to sell it to somebody and lead them straight to the pit. Right? Because <laughs> that's what you did in those days. We were fresh off the heels of the, the backmasking anxieties. Do you know, does anybody know what backmasking is? If you don't, you're probably younger than 20, maybe younger than 30. Backmasking is where if you played Satan's music backwards, you could receive secret messages from Satan. My favorite was Queen's We Will Rock You. If you play it backwards, it says, smoke marijuana. I'm, I'm serious. This is not a joke. So I... I, threw out, I, couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to burn the CDs, but I threw out all my secular music. 
I remember sitting on Saturday night. Think about how, how stupid this is. I, I sat around on Saturday night. I was so excited to go to the church the next day. I loved being in the house of God. I still do. It's my favorite day of the week. And I'd sit there on Saturday night watching Saturday Night Live. Because that was okay, but the secular music wasn't. With my finger on the remote. And when the musical guest came on, I'd mute it. And it felt like an eternity. How long is a three-minute song? Can't wait until they're done so I can unmute this. That was the kind of legalism. The problem is... I couldn't show you in Scripture where God said you can't listen to secular music. You can only listen to music that's marketed as Christian or that's on a Christian record label. Even bigger than that, I couldn't point you to very many places in Scripture, period. I didn't know it. I just knew what my opinions were. All I knew was that if you listen to 98.9 The Rock instead of Life 88.5, that best case scenario, Jesus just loved you a little bit less than he loved me, and probably you were going to go to hell. But that version of Dan would have probably gotten along really well with the Pharisees in Mark 2, right? You guys are sitting there going like, I thought I liked Dan. (laughs) He's a jerk. But the Pharisees wouldn't have thought so. They would have thought, this is our kind of guy. And Jesus responds to them in Mark 2 the way I think he would have responded to me back then. Haven't you read your Bible? And I would have had to have said, no. Jesus points them to an event that happened in the life of David when he and his mighty men were hungry and they ate the bread that was only allowed to be eaten by the high priests. Well, what is the precedent here? Jesus is showing the Pharisees and us, listen to this, that human flourishing is more important to the heart of God than wooden adherence to the law. Jesus goes on to say in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day, like we said, not because he was tired, but because he wanted to enjoy his work. But when God commanded us in Exodus 20 to remember the Sabbath, he did so for his glory and for our good. Amen? In the New Testament, we begin to see that Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Sabbath. He was the fulfillment of the whole shebang. The whole Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. He tells us in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I can't tell you how many times I and others have read that verse and read it like this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to abolish them. Because we go, I'm in Jesus. I don't have to do, I don't have to do those things. And we divide up God's precepts. And we say, yeah, it still abides that I can't murder someone. And Jesus went a step further and said, if you've had hateful thoughts in your heart toward a brother, that you're just as guilty of murder. If you looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you're just as guilty as if you had committed adultery with her. And we go, those are still valid, but not the Sabbath command. I'm going to do the heck out of some work this afternoon. I'm going to mow. I'm going to trim my hedges. I'm going to go to the grocery store. And look... I'm not trying to put a legalistic burden on you. I'm saying whatever day it is, prioritize rest, right? Maybe you can't do it on Sunday, and there's grace for that. Paul talks about that in Galatians. Man, don't don't let anybody put a yoke on you that God doesn't put on you. So if you Sabbath on Tuesday, great, but rest. That law wasn't done away with. 
Now, we're going to see that there is a, a greater fulfillment of the Sabbath law in Christ. But we have to be clear on this. We still need to stop sometimes. We need to make it part of our rhythm. In Acts and in Paul's epistles, uh, we start to gather from the things that Paul and Luke and Peter and James write, and John even in the book of Revelation, that the first century church no longer gathered on the seventh day. Israel used to gather for teaching on Saturday. It's what Leviticus 23.2 calls a holy convocation. But all of a sudden, God's people are no longer meeting on the seventh day. Now they're meeting on the first day, the Lord's day, the day that Christ was resurrected from the grave. We see that uh, the church now is having their holy convocation, their time of gathering and praising together and learning from the Scriptures is the first day of the week. Now, we're starting to understand a bit more about how Christ is our Sabbath rest. Okay, listen to this. In the New Testament, we're given two acts of remembrance. The Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day. I'm going to say something. Okay, so you maybe remember there's a passage in one of Paul's letters. I think it's 1 Corinthians where he goes, the Lord says this to you. And then he gives this principle. And then he goes, now, now this is what I'm saying. The Lord isn't saying this. I'm saying this. Right? I'm going to kind of do one of those numbers where I'm saying, this is my opinion. I am only one of your pastors. So I don't get to call these shots. I don't get to make decisions like this. This is my opinion, though. If we've been given these two acts of remembrance, the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day, we need to understand what they are there to remind us of. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the crucifixion, right? The Lord's Day reminds us of the Lord's resurrection. You can't have resurrection without death, right? So this is my opinion. My personal belief is that you can't have the Lord's Day without the Lord's Supper. So if I had my druthers, y'all know that phrase? Dude, two southern phrases back-to-back, druthers and y'all. If I had my druthers, I would, I would have us partake of the, the Lord's table every Sunday because of what I just said. You can't have the Lord's day without the Lord's supper. You can't have resurrection without crucifixion. And if the Lord's day reminds us of Resurrection, the Lord's Supper, reminds us of crucifixion. Now, in context, we don't partake of communion formally every Sunday, but, and this is where I'm personally very encouraged, we do receive the bread through the ministry of the Word. We receive the cup of fellowship as we commune together with the saints and in fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So spiritually, we have communion every week. But let me get back to the other remembrance we're given, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Here's why we gather in holy convocation on the first day of the week rather than the seventh day of the week. And this is the part I've been so excited about to share with you this morning. Prior to Christ's finished work of salvation, God's people worked for six days and then rested. But on this side of Christ's work, we start with rest, and we work from there. 
To get this reversed is essentially to place ourselves on God's throne. But he calls us to rest in him. That's the verse in Exodus 31 that I mentioned earlier. The Lord says to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you are to keep my Sabbaths. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. The Lord here calls the Sabbath a sign. He says, it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. A sign is not itself what matters. Right? Anybody driving down to the lake anytime soon or Branson and you get closer and you start seeing all these signs popping up for all the shows down there. Nobody drives down to Branson to go see, what is it, like the bald knobbers. And then as soon as they see the first sign of the bald knobbers, they go, there they are! (laughs) There's the bald knobbers. Well, we saw them. Guess we can turn around and head back home, right? That would be stupid. But we do that so often when we try to work first and then rest out of our work. We can't work hard enough to earn our rest. We can't deserve to rest. We don't deserve it. We deserve what our Old Testament counterparts got in Egypt. We deserve slavery. We deserve a lifetime, an eternity of slavery. But he calls us to rest in him. The Sabbath signifies something greater. It's not just true of the sign, but also of the substance, which is Christ. If you do not rest in Christ, listen to this, it will cost you your life. I'm not talking about holy war here on earth. I'm not threatening you. I'm not saying if you don't put your trust in Christ that we'll kill you. That's not how Christianity works. But your life is on the line. If you have not trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins... You're working so that you can rest someday. That rest will never come and you will die. Don't miss Bob Dylan. Figuratively speaking, of course. Just because Jesus isn't what we thought he would look like. Just because the signs that signified him in the Old Testament aren't the signs that we would have chosen. That doesn't make a difference. The problem is not with the God who reveals himself. The problem is with our eyes. And we need to be reminded regularly, weekly, I would venture, that we're not God. The Sabbath is a gift from God to remind you you're not God. So how are we to respond today? For some of us this morning, we've been caught in this infinite loop of working without resting. I want to encourage you to actually stop. Get some real rest. Let the dishes pile up. It's not the end of the world, okay? Let the laundry wait a day. Mow some other day this week. Eat what's in your pantry. Don't go to the grocery store. Just rest. Whether that's today or Monday or Tuesday or whatever day it is, just find a day and rest. Amen? If you take a day off, the world's not going to spin off its axis. If you're a Christian, perhaps you need to be reminded that your spiritual rest is secure in Christ. 
even if you don't do as I've just asked you to do, even if you don't take a day off, even if you do as my old friend Chet said, and, uh, and he said, I'll rest when I'm dead. He's still alive, by the way, and I'm pretty sure he rested after he said that. But if that's your mentality, I'll rest when I'm dead, God's not going to smite you because you aren't good at Sabbathing. But we should desire to be obedient. The most famous verse in Scripture is probably John 3.16. For God loved the world like this. He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Not whoever would work the hardest. Not whoever would rest the best. Whoever would believe in Him. But then the chapter concludes with this. And it's not as popular a verse. But John 3.36 says, If you believe in Me, you have eternal life. But if you disobey Me, the wrath of God remains upon you. It's interesting to me that Jesus compares and contrasts belief with disobedience. If we believe, we obey. And my hope is that I've shown you that it is still an abiding principle that you've got to rest sometimes. We look forward to that day as we just sang, when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransom home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. If you're hearing this message for the first time, if you're here today and you have not trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I plead with you, be reconciled. Come rest in Him. I beg you to turn from your sin, turn from your working, and run to Christ and rest in His arms. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the rest that you have not just promised but commanded us to have. Help us to open.